and welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 38. My name is Dominic, and I am one of the co-hosts of the show. My partner in crime's name is Janice, and you'll hear from him in a few minutes. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Justin Sledge, and we will be talking about the complex Jewish matrix of classical antiquity. And what we mean by that is the wide range of religious, cultural, and spiritual beliefs as practiced and lived by Jews of that era. And while they may not consider themselves Jews per se, we are including groups such as the Samaritans and the Mandaeans to that mix as they are undeniably and intimately intertwined. We of course also discuss the Baptist cults, the Christian cult, the Essenes, the so-called Gnostics, and much more. Dr. Sledge earned his undergraduate degree at Millsaps College and then went for his Doctor of Religious Studies at the University of Amsterdam and his Master's and PhD in Philosophy at the University of Memphis. He is currently a part-time professor of philosophy and religion at several institutions in the Detroit area and is a popular local educator. Dr. Sledge's work engages with religious studies, specifically in the so-called Western esoteric tradition or hermetic tradition, in religious and philosophical thought. In this line of research, he seeks to grasp the philosophical commitments which underpin the workings of magic, esoteric influence, spirit possession, alchemy, etc. This field of inquiry brings him primarily into contact with philosophers and intellectuals regrettably disregarded by the modern philosophic canon, but which is right at home here and right up our alley. So it was uh, it's a perfect place for Justin to, to come and chat. You can find him at justinsledge.com, as well as his very popular, and rightfully so, Esoterica YouTube channel. Before we jump in, as always, we have to say thank you to our very generous supporters at Patreon. I say it all the time, but we are continually blown away by the generosity and the amazing support we get from folks. So uh, thank you again, sincerely. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. May the merits we accumulate doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening.
Okay, welcome to the show, everyone. We are excited to be talking to scholar and uh, all-around cool guy, Dr. Justin Sledge, today about a whole host of topics, too many to list right here, right now, but um, I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. Welcome to the show, Justin. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Such a really interesting, rich topics. So thank you for having me on. Our pleasure. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this because we both immensely enjoy your channel. It's uh, extremely enlightening and enriching and uh, adds adds a, a necessary, uh, I don't know, a necessary voice to the, the whole esoteric dialogue happening right now, um, coming from this uh, scholarly approach that you have. But like we talked about a second ago, um, not taking yourself too seriously, I think is important. Yeah, it's the channel's a lot of fun to to make, and I'm still learning the ropes. You know, the channel's less than a year old at this point, so I'm still, you know, learning how to des- how to best do the YouTube thing and you know, what kind of tone I want everything to take. So I'm just really thankful and really humbled by you know people like y'all and other people that have been so supportive of the channel by watching and leaving great comments and uh, folks on Patreon supporting the channel. So it's it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I really just as an educator, I just love sharing this kind of material and getting the stuff that is normally just sort of locked away either in the ivory tower or locked away by uh, people that for whatever reason don't want this stuff to be more widely known. It's it's nice to be able to do some of the work of of getting this information out in a way that I, I think is pretty reliable and, you know, also fun. So I've, I've had a lot of fun with the channel. So thank you all. Well, you also synthesize a lot. I mean, you you range over a variety of topics, but at the same time, I think your selection of the topics that you discuss, it helps people to see the bigger paradigm that's underlying all of them. And um, your presentation is excellent as well. It just keeps it to a certain high bar that we definitely also strive for. And, you know, at this point, we've, I mean, there have been leaps and strides made in, in the study of esotericism. And I think that even for public consumption, at this point, we need to have a certain bar, we need to have a certain standard, and we need to have a certain uh, approach to engaging these topics, and in a living way, too. And that's another thing I think you do that I personally appreciate is your the way you approach these things is not dead, dry subjects, but living things that we engage with, not only intellectually, but spiritually. Yeah, you know, Faulkner once said that the that the past isn't dead; it's it's not even past, and that's really true. I really feel that very deeply, um, and I think that for the channel, when I when I focus on things on esoterica, I'm really trying to strike a balance between maintaining, like you said, a pretty high level of academic rigor and intellectual rigor, but also I want the material to be presented in a way that's respectful for, for many people, I think, that watch the channel who are practitioners of, of either Kabbalah or, or magic or various forms of, um, of hermeticism or occultism. And so I present the material so that it can really reach a wide range of people, either way from, all the way from practicing um, occultists to just people who are skeptically curious about, I don't know, demons or the lesser key of Solomon or what have you. So I try to maintain something of that balance and, you know, I'm, I'm still learning to do that all the time. So um, again, I'm really just very humbled that, that people are so patient with the, with the process of me learning how to do all that. And um, yeah, just really humbled and thankful for, for the folks that watch the show. 
Cool. So the topic that we're going to try to cover today is the the Jewish matrix of the Second Temple around the first century. Um, pretty pretty broad, but I think it can go in a lot of interesting directions. But before we go there, I would like to ask you how you got going on this on this path. Um, what brought you to this specific area of esoteric study? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. I've wondered a lot about how in the world I ended up uh, doing studying some of. Sometimes I'm looking down at a you know a text in Aramaic and I ask myself, how did you get here? Uh, what in your life uh, led you to, <laughs> to, to to this moment where you're looking at a a magical text about invoking angels in Aramaic and yeah. the weird journeys that we find ourselves uh, on. Uh, my, I guess my journey to put it briefly was really a couple of things. One was that I was raised, uh, grow, I grew up watching, you know, unsolved mysteries and, uh, Indiana Jones and Arthur C. Clarke's mysterious world and in search of, uh, that was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. And as a kid, I just, I saw these shows and the world that was presented by those shows was so mysterious and captivating, whether it was ghosts or the Bermuda Triangle or the Holy Grail or whatever, uh, that the world just struck me as in, in super mysterious and weird. And that sense that the world was odd and mysterious never left me. And as I got older, I uh, discovered you know things like John D and these spirit diaries that he had left behind, and especially the, the, the Enochian language. And at the time I was learning Latin uh, as, a, as a teenager and there was something about like, wow, this language has structure, right? This just isn't something that's made up or at least not made up in some conventional way. Something very strange is going on here. And these questions just kind of kept percolating in my mind over the years. And uh, eventually I got pretty into philosophy, eventually earned a PhD, eventually uh, earned a PhD in philosophy. And you know, I, I looked at my looked at my career path. I looked at my academic path, and I was like, you know what? I really want to spend a chunk of time just studying esotericism. That's what I want to do. I just want to study esotericism for a while. And uh, applied to the program at the University of Amsterdam, and got in and, and got a scholarship, which was very good considering that I didn't have a ton of money. And spent a while studying esotericism, and so the part of what motivated it for me was just the idea that the world is not a simple place, that reality is not a simple thing, and that people have explored it using all kinds of techniques from mysticism to intellectualism to uh, to occultism to philosophy. And I think that in the modern period, we hyper-emphasize the rational, we hyper-emphasize the empirical. And I think that those obviously are very productive, but at the same time, they're not the entirety of the human experience, certainly. And they're not the only mechanism by which the vast majority of human beings have navigated reality. And so from a philosophical point of view, exploring those alternative methods for understanding and exploring reality seemed, it seemed like the obvious logical thing to do if you're going to do philosophy at some level is have some interaction with this kind of material. So I did that. And, um, you know, I've, I've been studying esotericism um, ever, you know, before I went to Amsterdam and ever since then. And uh, Esoterica, the YouTube channel that I host, is um, is basically a uh, attempt by me to begin producing content that makes this otherwise very arcane uh, material available and accessible uh, and basically accessible for free so that you don't have to go all the way to the University of Amsterdam to, to study this stuff. 
Awesome. Awesome. And I can totally relate to your, your origin story. I was obsessed with, with all those shows. We must be the same age. Um, I was just obsessed with the Bermuda Triangle and pyramids, mummies, Bigfoot, ghosts. Yeah, that was, and there was no internet. So you, those shows, when they came on, it was like gold. Oh, they were great. Uh, they're great. Now, even to this day, if I hear the uh, Unsolved Mysteries, you know, theme and Robert <laughs> Stack walking out, you know, in, in his like, uh, in his, you know, his, his trench coat walking out of the fog, it still kind of like creeps me out in this, <laughs> this absolutely wonderful way. Yeah, same with me. Also, Tales from the Dark Side theme would do oh, that yeah. too. Yeah, definitely. Oh, Tell the, oh, that's so, those are some great spooks. I love that that's stuff. I, to this some, day, I still love to, to, to watch that stuff. It's just, um, some and, classics. You know, it's, it's classic. And it's just, Again, you know, philosophy, uh, Aristotle once said that philosophy begins in awe. And I really believe mm. that. And I think that, you know, it doesn't begin with the intellect. It begins with awe. And part of what I really liked about the idea that philosophy begins with awe is that so much of the material in Western esotericism is the result of having an awe-inspiring experience, right? And so uh, that's that, that I still get that sense of awe from looking at these texts, whether it's, you know, angel magic or... Uh, you know, the Corpus Hermeticum or, you know, what's, you know, these kinds of texts are, they're, they're very all oriented texts. Mm-hmm. And so for me, as a person who's trained in philosophy, it's a very natural kind of thing. So yeah, those, those old, a lot of those old theme songs and stuff like that still evoke in me that childhood sense of wonder, which I think is an incredibly powerful and rich mine of inspiration and emotion. Cool. Yeah. I mean, there were some really great shows on in the eighties at like midnight. <laughs> I don't know what they were, yeah. but there were some weird, <laughs> there's some weird stuff going on. Um, okay. So let's get into our topic because this is something that's extremely fascinating. And I, I think you can really uh, illuminate some of these things for people. So in general, can you maybe start talking about the, the Jewish matrix uh, around the first century? And was there this monolithic Judaism that existed or what did it look like? Yeah. So the short answer is, is no. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the, you know, sometimes people say things like Christianity emerged out of Judaism and this kind of way, but I think the truth of the matter is a bit more complicated. I would say that rabbinical Judaism and Christianity emerged out of a, out of a, a sort of a bubbling sea of Judaisms that existed, you know, during the first, the time of the first temple and, and the couple centuries prior to that. And so I think that what we have is sort of a field of, of, of Judaisms and there's a wide range of practices going on, everything from the, uh, the temple cult there in, in Jerusalem and other temples that existed at the same time. Of course, the temple in Alexandria is a, is an interesting other temple that not many people talk about for whatever reason. Um, so we have, you know, the temple cult going on, we have protests against the temple going on as well. So there are protest religious movements led by uh, groups like the, um, the Essenes who can talk about more. And then there's just the wide range of, of Judaisms, everything from, uh, what probably were the early Merkava mystics to the political, um, religious, uh, fanatics, people like the zealots and the Sakari to the Jesus movement, the early Jesus movement obviously is in that same uh, world of these Judaisms. So uh, we have a, a just a, a matrix, and I think the word matrix is good, right? The word matrix it means womb in Latin, and so what we have is a sort of a, a womb with lots of different things percolating, and out of which eventually does emerge rabbinical Judaism and of course Christianity. But we shouldn't forget that there was a, a sea of religiosity in the Jewish world 
ranging from what we would now call Gnosticism all the way to animal sacrifice and, and the temple. So a really complicated world, and I think a world that's so complicated that um, it's often difficult for me to wrap my mind around just how complicated that world was because our world now is actually very simple in many ways. So a, a super dense, very interesting world with lots of different things going on. And so certainly not one Judaism that, that absolutely um, absolutely did not exist, certainly by the, in the first century. It's fascinating. I, I never thought about Judaism in that way personally. Um, I'm undereducated in that area. But studying early Christianity and Gnosticism, Gnosticism which, which are, are quite intertwined, it is those, those subjects in themselves are extremely confusing trying to figure out because there were so many different groups and sects, and they didn't necessarily agree on things. I mean, Gnosticism definitely was not like a, a, a thing. It was many things, uh, many perspectives, and the same with Christianity. There was a wide range of Christian beliefs, and, and then to, to think that Judaism was the same way it makes more sense to me. It, it helps kind of contextualize this whole, this whole uh, <laughs> matrix a little bit better um, to think that this is, this was kind of what was going on before the Gnosticisms and the Christianities. Um, the Judaism was, was already like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it would be proper to call it Judaisms. The, yeah. There are lots of competing Judaisms um, that did not see the eye to eye and, you know, and actively, you know, worked against each other. I mean, we shouldn't forget that the the great revolt in the during against the Romans was as much a civil war as it was a war against the Romans. So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't even it wasn't as if the the, the Jewish population saw eye to eye politically, religiously, um, etc. So it's a really seething kind of world. Um, why it's not like an HBO TV series is completely beyond me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like it makes so much, it would make the, to put an, an era, sort of a gritty HBO mo- show set right on the eve of uh, either the Bar Kokhba re- rebellion in 130, uh, 132 or so, or right before the destruction of the temple. Just that just would be such an amazing, mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's such an amazing world. And that's a world that I feel like is so uh, pregnant with possibility in terms of storytelling with, some of these figures, you know, people like Hanina Bendosa or, uh, or Jesus, for that matter, or other kinds of people, that there's just so many colorful characters that, that could intersect and the, the stories, we wouldn't have to really work hard. The, the stories tell themselves so that it's, it's mm-hmm. a world that I, I find enormously, uh, enormously in, uh, and, and evergreen, evergreen in terms of, of being interesting. So how does that translate to the modern day? I mean, is there still a, a sense of Judaisms or has it, kind of uh, focused into more of, of one kind of particular Judaism? I would say that overall, I mean, it, depending on how you want to count them. Um, yeah. So obviously rabbinical Judaism is a, is a Judaism that, that survived for reasons that we could go into, but ra- rabbinical Judaism is the Judaism that survived, but there are, are, there are other Judaisms. For instance, Karaite Judaism is a form of Judaism that rejects rabbinical authority. So it does not accept the authority of the, the Talmud. It doesn't accept the authority of the various rabbinical codes. So it's sort of a Bible only Judaism. And of course, there's also Samaritanism. Uh, Samaritanism was one of these Judaisms, of course, that existed. Uh, of course, they wouldn't call themselves that. But if we think about Judaism writ large in a more general way, so Samaritanism also continues to exist, although unfortunately, the numbers are quite small. And um, I don't, wouldn't say that they're threatened with extinction, but um, 
you know, the we, we should be very careful with the, the Samaritan population. That is a real, um, yeah, it's a real treasure of people there and a real treasure of traditions and history. And so, but yeah, uh, at this point, one would say that there's rabbinical Judaism, there's non-rabbinical Judaism or Karaism, and of course, Samaritanism survives uh, as well. Um, I wouldn't include what is sometimes referred to as Messianic Judaism in that group. I think that's a kind of Christianity, in fact. But uh, certainly those three would be the, the ones that have survived, obviously rabbinical Judaism being the largest. And of course, within rabbinical Judaism, there's everything from very liberal Judaism all the way to uh, Haredi Judaism, the very sort of ultra-Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, within that, there's Hasidism, the entire movement of, the, of, of Hasidic Jews, which is uh, very large and has its own cultural history and practices and a very strong adjunct of Kabbalah in there as well. Um, I, I love that you mentioned Samaritanism because I definitely want to get into that. Um, it's it's fascinating, and it's a people and and a, a style of Judaism which isn't really talked about very much. The history is just extremely interesting there. Um, so let's maybe go back and start talking about some of these sects. So how do you what determines if something is a community, a sect, or a, a cult in in antiquity, yeah, Is, these words these words are so loaded, right? Uh, yeah, right. Blood. So um, I don't know. I, I, these words get used in all kinds of different ways. Um, I tend to use them somewhat interchangeably. I think that's, that's I'm sure that's going to make someone cringe somewhere. Um, sometimes sect is used specifically to refer to a minority group that opposes or splits off from a majority group. For instance, uh, the Essenes would be thought of as a sect of within Judaism. But I think that just I think that that assumes there's a great deal more uh, homogeneity than there really was in, in ancient Judaism. So I think just calling them groups uh, or using the word sect and, and trying to understand that the word there is uh, is is is, an, is a non-biased term. You know, when if I were to refer to the Qumran community as a sect, I wouldn't be trying to slander them or say that they were somehow wrong or anything like that or bad. Um, cult is a weird term, right? You know, the old joke about cults is that, uh, time plus cult equals religion. So, (laughs) you know, um, what starts off as a cult, you give it enough time and it will become a religion. Uh, same with the the old joke about dialects, right? Uh, language is simply a dialect with an army. So, you know, these things get, get a little weird. Sometimes the temple is sometimes referred to as the temple cult. And just the word cult there just means that they're doing something religious there in the temple, uh, sp- the specific rituals involved with with temple worship and and the early period of of Jewish history, so I tend to use these words a little inter- interchangeably. And again, I know that that's not that's making someone really a- outraged right now, but I tend to use them. <laughs> I-, I tend to use them a little, a little, a little interchangeably. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we're always making someone outraged, especially Janice. So that's <laughs> that's normal here. Um, so you mentioned the Essenes and the Qumran community. So maybe let's start there. You want to give us kind of a, a general breakdown of, of what was happening there, why they were why they were separating themselves, what what was different about what they wanted to practice? Yeah, so the Qumran community, um, so we should separate the Qumran community from the Essenes. Um, okay. There's some, there, there's some debate about to what degree they overlap. We yeah. know, for instance, that there were Essenes that were not at Qumran. Uh, we're not even sure that Qumran was always occupied. It's, this, this is still... Uh, there's a lot of debate still, but the over the general overview would be something like this: 
The Essenes, which also I should mention that the Qumran community, the folks that produced at least a great deal of the Dead Sea Scrolls as we have them, um, they never called themselves that. In the 960-odd scrolls that have been recovered, the word Essene never appears. They never call themselves that. Um, they typically refer to themselves as the Yachad, which just means something like the community. So typically I refer to them using their own terms because I think that's just the, the considerate thing to do. But the short story is that it appears that at some point in um, in Jewish history, specifically in the period uh, prior to the turn of the common era, there was a struggle over power in the Jerusalem temple. And um, the folks that we now identify as the Essenes broke with the Jerusalem temple. They referred to um, some conflict with what they called the wicked priest. We're not sure who exactly the wicked priest was. Um, and the so-called teacher of righteousness, this is what they called their leader, the teacher of righteousness broke away from the temple, and basically they retreated uh, out of the temple, out of temple-based Judaism, and either began to wait for a kind of apocalyptic end of the world, where they would emerge victorious after a uh, eschatological battle with the forces of evil, Belial, as they call uh, this evil entity, so they're basically a protest movement of a certain kind, and the the group out at Qumran seems to have been uh, an initiatory group. That is to say, you had to get sort of tapped in. There was a long process. It was very difficult to actually join the community. It seems to have been primarily men, and it seems to have been somewhat celibate, almost monastic, which is very unlike Judaism. Judaism has never had a monastic movement, and celibacy is not really thought of as a Jewish value. In fact, it's forbidden in in, in many in many cases. And so we think that basically they were out at Qumran and other places around uh, waiting for the world to end in a sort of cataclysmic battle. And uh, when the, the great revolt occurred, we, if we can trust Josephus, we know that they did engage in combat. We know uh, they had a strategos, a general, that they were, um, they engaged in several different battles with the Romans, uh, probably thinking the world was ending, which was not, a, not an, an irrational thing to believe in considering what was going on. But we also know they were slaughtered at the Battle of Ascalon. They were just annihilated there. And so their scrolls pretty much got left out there in Qumran to be discovered through time and mostly discovered in the mid-20th century. So we can think about them as kind of an apocalyptic protest movement. Um, so I, sometimes I liken them a little bit to the to the Branch Davidians. It's not a perfect, uh, not a perfect fit, obviously, but um, a kind of political religious protest movement against the, the temple cult there in Jerusalem. And of course, we have an enormous amount of documents. And so we're getting, getting to know them uh, quite well, even though primarily in the previous times, we only knew them through Josephus and through a little bit of Philo. So, okay. So do you believe that the Essenes then are connected to the Dead Sea Scrolls directly, even though that they are, are not called the Essenes in those scrolls. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think I think that's the I think that's the scholarly consensus. There there are definitely scholars that 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 disagree with that. Uh, it seems to me and other the majority of scholars that the that the that the Essenes were a larger group of which the Qumran group was a, a was a subgroup, maybe a, okay. a much more intense subgroup. And that the Qumran group were um, were were basically what we would what we what we got called the Essenes. Um, this is also true, for instance, of things like the Pharisees. Um, you know, the rabbis, which of of which uh, the rabbis, some of which were Pharisees, rarely ever call themselves that. They never call themselves that. So it's often weird 
what groups get called versus what they call themselves. But yeah, I think that the Qumran group was a sect or a, a group within the Essenes and that they were basically preparing for the end of the world, uh, at least the end of everyone else's world. Of course, they would be the ones <laughs> they would they would be the ones that would survive and they would be the ones that would be, you know, uh, like a lot of groups. They thought that they were the, the only ones who were right. Do you think that um, or are you aware of any historical connection between this group and the Ebionites? The Ebionites are an interesting group. So they're first mentioned, I think, in Irenaeus, which Irenaeus is writing in about 185 over there in France, which is really weird to think about that Irenaeus was writing in, in what is now France. They seem to have been, the Ebionites, at least according to um, Irenaeus, were a kind of Judaizing sect of Christianity. That is to say, they were a sect of, of Christians that were attempting to maintain Jewish identity while at the same time being Christians. Which is interesting um, because the word Ebionite comes from the the Hebrew word Ebionim, uh, which means poor, the the ones that are poor. And what's curious about that word is that the only, one of the few times where in the New Testament the community refers to itself, the early community of Christians, they refer to themselves. They actually refer to themselves as the saints and the poor. So what's it's just that phrase "the poor" occurs there, and obviously in Greek and not in Hebrew. So I think that what we have in the Ebionites is a kind of hang, a hanging on of uh, Judeo-Christian identity, uh, which is ironic that it becomes heretical, according to Irenaeus, but that sort of hanging on there um, around 185, although I, I, I don't think they're connected to the Essenes. I, I don't think so. Also, what's interesting about that is that Irenaeus is mentioning them there in 185. I would be surprised if Jewish Christians still existed by 185. I, I would at least in Palestine, I think that most of them would have been probably um, killed during the Bar Kokhba rebellion that ended in 135. So, well, it wasn't Mani, wasn't Mani's father an Ebionite or associated with the group that had ties to the Ebionites? I could be. I'm not sure. That that certainly could be. I don't. I'm not. Sh- yeah, I don't know. Um, I know that Mani sort of was very. Uh, he was very influenced by lots of things, according you know things like Man- the Mandeans and things like that. Um, so yeah, I don't, that specific thing, I don't know. And then with the Mandeans, you know, or the, or the Nazarites, that's an interesting subject in itself. And I've sometimes wondered if there's any potential historical connection between the Mandeans and, um, some of these other groups, including the Essenes. I mean, personally, I think the, the, the argument that we, that seems to be less popular now, but was very popular at one point that Jesus was in a scene. I, I don't place that much credence in that argument, but I think it's still an interesting topic to explore. It, it could be. I think when I, when I, as much as we know about the historical Jesus, he, he strikes me as very rabbinical. In fact, he's a bit of conser- a bit of a conservative guy, actually. It's funny that Jesus is sometimes painted as this kind of anti-rabbi hippie kind of guy. Right. But, you know, if you look at his actual uh, legal teachings with the exception, for instance, of, uh, gathering things on the Sabbath. Uh, for instance, his teaching on divorce is the strictest teaching on divorce that I know of in all of Jewish history, that you're not allowed to do it. So Jesus is a weird, is, a, is an interesting character in that regard. Um, I don't see much in terms of, of, of an Essene connection there, maybe more so with his uh, cousin, John the Baptist. That seems like a much more likely connection. And of course, Many of Je- it seems that many of Jesus's earliest followers were actually followers of John the Baptist. That when John the Baptizer was was executed, they they came over and began to follow uh, Jesus. So that could be a connection. And of course, the you know the Mandeans. If you read the the 
um, their literature, the the main text, what is it? The, the Harwangawaita, I think is the, the historical text of the Mandeans. They, they basically tell a story in which they were operating in the Jordan. They refer to all flowing bodies of water as the Arden, as the Jordan. And they tell a story of basically them immigrating from what is now Palestine, Israel, into basically what is southern Iraq. So again, I, I, I have no reason to, to doubt that that's a, a legitimate historical memory. So It's fascinating. Yeah, this is getting really interesting. I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on, I mean, you, you kind of went there, but John the Baptist, what he would have been a part of. And it seems as though Jesus was also... Uh, in that mix, um, what Jesus's background would have or could have been in that whole milieu there going on. Yeah, it's so hard to say, you know. Um, clearly, from what little we can tell, you know, John the Baptizer and Jesus were related. I think they were cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it seems that John the Baptist adopted some kind of ascetic lifestyle. We, the only description of him we have is him being dressed in pretty unusual way, surviving on a relatively odd diet, honey and locusts and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems as if he's part of this sort of um, uh, baptizing movement that that was going on at the time. Uh, the Essenes also were very interested in ritual purity and the idea of you know constant immersion for uh, obliterating ritual purity, obviously a huge concern of the Mandeans as well. And, and to this day, even in Judaism, um, going to the, to the mikvah, go, becoming ritually immersed it's still a thing that happens for Orthodox Jews basically every week. So that's, that's not fundamentally changed, but yeah, it's, it seems like he's sort of one of these apocalyptic preachers. And if and these, these sort of the world's about to end or be transformed in some kind of way and that people have to become ritually ready for it. And we see that uh, we see that all over Judaism at that time, there was a huge apocalyptic movement uh, of Judaism. One even might even say that there was a kind of apocalyptic strain of Judaism that existed that was even popular among some rabbis. For instance, uh, Rabbi Akiva, this would have been a couple of generations after Jesus, when Bar Kokhba began his rebellion against the Romans, uh, uh, none less than Rabbi Akiva, perhaps one of the most famous rabbis of the of the Tanitic period, declared Bar Kokhba to be the Messiah. And so was very enthusiastic about his messianic claims and his rebellion against the Romans, uh, so much so that it eventually got uh, Rabbi Akiva killed. Uh, although there are other rabbis that were completely opposed to this, there's a, a great line in the Talmud where uh, one of the other rabbis tells Rabbi Akiva that uh, grass will grow out of your cheeks and the son of David will not have come. Uh, another way of putting it was, you'll be dead and gone and uh, the Messiah will not have come. Brokokba is not the guy. But clearly that was something that even a very respected rabbi, one of the most respected rabbis in history, could be swept up into this apocalyptic mm. messianism. Something I find interesting is I think in Clement the assertion that or the pseudo Clement the pseudo Clement writings uh, um, I think I think that um, the assertion that Simon of Samaria Jesus Dositheus and uh, John the Baptist were all associated with one another and the the stories that suggest that Simon and Jesus were actually both disciples of John at one point is intriguing to me because in the le- in the context of what we're discussing it also suggests a possible connection to samaritan traditions yeah the pseudo clements a really fascinating text um unfortunately it doesn't get corroborated anywhere else it sort of like stands on its own in this in this very unusual way but yeah i mean it's a bit of an outlier i don't know that scholars take it to be 
representative of, of, of the historical Jesus as we typically understand him, but it's certainly possible. I'm not, you know, again, I'm, we just know so little and there's so much, you know, there's so much going on. Um, and we forget also that uh, the Galilee is just a hotbed of these kind of characters. The Galilee at this time, uh, you know, Jesus sits in between basically two of these characters, these Galilean miracle workers, um, uh, the Anshe Ma'ases, what they're referred to in Hebrew, the the companions of wonder. It's a weird, it's, it's hard to translate from Hebrew, but um but we have, you know, Choni uh, the circle maker who existed, who lived uh, sometime a couple, a bit before Jesus, a couple centuries before Jesus. And we have Chanina uh, Bendosa, who's another one of these miracle workers and exorcist who, who's living there also in the Galilee. So the Galilee seemed to produce these kind of characters uh, for whatever reason. And also the Galilee at that time was a bit um, kind of the Wild West in some ways. It was disconnected from uh, Judea da- down there where the temple was by what is called the Samaritan zone. And there are stories in uh, Josephus. We're not sure that they're completely reliable. Josephus is always a little touch and go uh, where people are are going on pilgrimages and they have to cross through the Samaritan zone and they encounter some significant problems. Uh, I think some of them are attacked and things like this. And so the whole Galilee uh, with Jesus and John the Baptist and Janina Bendosa and Joni the Circle Maker, that entire area is sort of rife with this kind of uh, these kind of unusual miracle doing characters. It makes me think of like, you know, Samaritan Jawas out there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it was it, the, the Galilee was a, was, a, was a curious place. And again, it was so far removed that if you read the New Testament closely, it's very clear that it's, it's far enough removed that the way that they speak is recognizable, that they speak Hebrew or spoke Aramaic in a way that was instantly recognizable to people in Jerusalem. Um, so it was a bit of a, you know, Judea itself was sort of a, very obscure, distant place in the Roman Empire. No one wanted to go there. You know, no one wanted to be stationed there. And the Galilee was itself even further sort of removed in many ways from that. And so the fact that it's cut right through the middle with the Samaritan zone means that you know, it sort of percolated its own weird identity uh, in that area. Interesting. And how Hellenized was this area at this time? The Galilee, there were definitely cities that were heavily Hellenized. There were definitely cities that were heavily Romanized. I mean, Jesus would have grown up not far from uh, the cities that were basically completely Roman. They're basically Roman outposts that had, uh, you know, you know, like you could pick up them from Italy and stick them in Judea. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, they were heavily, it was heavily uh, Hellenized. I mean, even as far back as the Maccabees, we have to remember that. The Hanukkah War, uh, the war that that led to to what was the the holiday of Hanukkah, um, the Maccabees were just as much interested in attacking Hellenized Jews as they were attacking Greeks, and so um, yeah, there was a high degree of Hellenization, a high degree of Romanization that was going on in the region. And part of what's interesting about Jesus, uh, when you look at where he gives sermons and you look at where he seems to travel is he's basically never in these cities. He's always on the outskirts. He's always in the countryside. Um, it seems like his relationship to the Romans was pretty antagonistic. In fact, we have this uh, famous story of the garrison demoniac, right? Where Jesus, um, this is, in, it takes place in the Transjordan where Jesus is encountering this guy who's possessed by a demon. And the demon of course is named Legion. Well, that's, that, that's really telling, right? The demon's mm-hmm. name possessing this man is the, the basic fighting unit of the Roman army. And so I think no one in the first century reading or hearing that story would have 
that would not have been lost on, on anybody. Mm-hmm. And then considering, of course, not 60, not 30 years after Jesus is executed, uh, the entire area is, goes into a massive re- uh, rebellion. So uh, separating the political from the religious, separating the apocalyptic from the orthodox, uh, separating mainstream from not mainstream is incredibly difficult, I think, at this time. But a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> incredibly fun. It's a grist for the mill of a thousand dissertations. So right. Um, so it's 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 a it's an endlessly fascinating period because of just it, it's it's like it's it's like four different chess games going on at once. It's just a really really complicated world, and we know just enough that we can touch it at some level, and yet there's so much we we don't know you know, about these, uh, these characters and, you know, even with the Essenes, it's fascinating that, um, that one of their documents, we know, we knew about one of their documents, the Damascus document was found well before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the question, it was found, um, in the Ibn Ezra synagogue. And you're like, one wonders, like, how did this document get out of the hands of the Essenes and get copied by other non-Essene Jews enough that it would survive into the middle ages? It's Mm -hmm. so strange. Uh, where the word did a scene survive somehow like what we just we don't know it's so weird and it's just the entire time period is just absolutely fascinating going back a second i mean uh, yeah just when you think you've got it sort of figured out there's there's other angles like uh the biblical scholar uh jean dominic croissant he tends to focus on the political side of jesus and it just makes so much sense and it's like maybe this was the whole message but like you said, it's so multidimensional. No, right. Far- uh, yeah. Separating. There's no, there's no separating religion and politics at that time. That's yeah. just not, not conceivable. And again, Jesus, Jesus is executed basically as a, as a rebel. He's basically executed as a, as a uh, insurrectionist. And so there's no way to separate uh, what Jesus, how Jesus dies with who Jesus, with who Jesus was, of course, and reading him in, in some sense as a political insurgent, uh, makes sense, assuming again that you you're really deeply combining both the idea of Jesus as a spiritual teacher and as a a, a political agent provocateur or something. Right. Let's. I'm interested in your in your thoughts on the Mandans. Let's go back to them mm-hmm. um, because they fit into this whole matrix in an interesting way. Um, they seem to be very much in favor of John the Baptist. I mean, they they say as much in their holy books. But they are they speak of Jesus in the same way that Christians speak of Simon Magus, very antagonistic um, and they don't trust him. Um, and it's interesting because the Mandans, their their foundation is very uh, Judaic in, in a way. I mean, they believe in Adam and Eve and a lot of the uh, Old Testament stuff, but they also are pretty extreme in the in the sense that, they, in order to be a Mandan priest, you cannot be circumcised, which is <laughs> quite different. So, what are your thoughts on on them? Yeah, the men, the the origins of the Mandeans are just incredibly complicated. Yeah, they come out of again. They come. They're emerging probably out of this this larger Jewish matrix. Um, and we know that there are other kinds of Jewish groups um, that we may mention. For instance, the groups that we sometimes refer to as the Sethians who are very clearly coming out of a Jewish context, but have a very antagonistic relationship, for instance, with the, with the Israelite God, um, with the, you know, they have this idea that this, that God is evil somehow, but clearly they're informed by, by Jewish scripture and, and Jewish thinking in a very deep way. Did it with the Mandeans. So it's hard to say exactly what, you know, exactly where the, the Mandeans originate. 
they have they have several different origin stories for themselves. Um, in fact, their scriptures seem to go all over the place. There are several. I think the Genza Rabbah has four or five different creation stories, and so it may be the case that that the Mandeans are are a, just an incredibly complex group that emerge from one area and absorb stuff over time, and they become their own. Uh, obviously, they become their own re- uh, religious movement. So they're clearly part of the story as well. Although uh, exactly where and how remains mysterious. In fact, there are scholars I think that you know even dismiss the idea that they originally came from the area of, of Palestine, Israel, and actually locate them just squarely, always having been in what is now southern Iraq. Uh, that seems unlikely to me. But it doesn't make sense. They speak so much about the Jordan. Yeah, it, it seems very clear that there's some historical there's some historical memory of of being in that region and having had some kind of conflict with the Jewish uh, the Jewish again uh, inter Jewish uh, conflict. And them immigrating away from that, away from that region. So that seems unlikely to me. And also, I just, I, 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 I and not always, but I tend to take seriously people's indigenous histories. I think there's a long history of scholars not taking indigenous people's histories seriously, and I think that's it's been repeatedly shown to be a bad idea. Like we should trust at some level these people, um, and if they tell us a history, we should take it pretty seriously. And so I, I try to take. You know, whether it's, you know, the DNA people or whether it's uh, the Mandeans or whatever, I, I, if they have a historical record, we should we should take it pretty seriously. It seems to me. Well, and, um, you know, it's it's also interesting because there's definitely parallels with the Yazidi. There's mm-hmm. certain things that, are, that show some kind of some kind of relationship uh, in some way. And then there's also interesting parallels with Zoroastrianism and in the Mandaean religion. And, but I think you can also find some Zoroastrian parallels in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Although I know this has been debated. I, I see them when I've studied them. I think it's fairly clear. I think scholars in general, accept that, that there's some high degree, some degree of, of influence from Zoroastrianism, just in Judaism in general. In fact, I would argue, I think it would be not terribly controversial that apocalyptic Judaism has a great deal um, in common with Zoroastrianism and probably as a result of contacts between uh, Jewish exiles and what is now um, in the Babylonian exile, that at some level they come in contact with Zoroastrians and you end up getting this hybrid hybridization. In fact, I would say that apocalyptic Judaism is is downstream of some level of that contact. Because if you look at the kind of Jewish ideas that existed prior to the Babylonian Exile, you don't see much in the way of angels and demons. They're there, but they're not a big deal. You don't really see much about the end of the world. You don't really see much about messiahs and sort of savior figures. And then, of course, they come out of the exile and just boom, there's all these angels and demons and there's all this tours of heaven and hell and uh, savior figures and et cetera, et cetera. So it, it seems to me that Judaism was heavily influenced by, by some kind of contact with Zoroastrians, probably in the Babylonian, in the Babylonian exile. And so where do you see the Sethian, uh, so-called Sethian Gnostics fitting into this? Good question. I don't know. I've thought about this for, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've molded this stuff over in my mind so many times. And th- it's just such a strange, it's such a strange question, just in the sense that they, that so clearly the, the folks that we call Sethians are, they're so clearly informed by Judaism. They're clearly people who have, a Jewish background. They, they're very knowledgeable of Judaism, of everything, of just the wide range. And then, and at the same time, they have this deep hatred for, um, for Judaism at some level and for, um, for the Israelite God. And so it, it seems to me that they're, 
it's 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 some some sect of Judaism that turned in upon itself. Um, and and that happens every once in a while in religion, so it's not so crazily unusual. But I think exactly where they developed, how they developed, how they developed this incredibly Baroque uh, mythology that emerges in those contexts. What we find, for instance, in the Apocryphon of John, I don't think we're ever really going to know the answer to that question. I think it's so complex and uh, exactly how all that worked itself out. I really, I throw my hands up. I just have no idea. It's so absolutely unusual. Well, I was hoping for a definitive answer there, Justin, so... Sorry, man. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, yeah, the uh, the bravest thing a scholar can say is, I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, thank you for trying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I wish I had a theory for you. I, I, I may, yeah, I, and I, I, you know, I've read so many theories and they just, they all seem grasping at, at straws or reaching. And, and I think at some point you just have to say things get, are just so mysterious. So we just, we just don't, we don't know. I'm reading a book currently that um, is putting forth the the question of was Plotinus um, influenced by Sethian Gnostic um, ascent in his Neoplatonic teachings on the ascent, and that's just a whole other angle bringing the mm-hmm. Neoplatonists into this whole conversation. Um, where is you know chicken or the egg? Like how much did Neoplatonism have an influence on these Judaisms and and vice versa? Mm-hmm. No, for sure, and. And again, also just to think about, you know, this time period, we, we often, there's often a mistake I think some scholars make or some people make about projecting Neoplatonic ideas back in time. And what's interesting is that, you know, you look at the Corpus Hermeticum or you look at these Gnostic groups that existed, they exist hundreds of years before Plotinus um, and uh, yeah, before Plotinus and before the rise of Neoplatonism. And even uh, Middle Platonists, people like Philo of Alexandria, who we take to be very important, obviously, in the history, for instance, of Middle Platonism, there's no evidence that Philo of Alexandria had any influence on anybody at all in, at that time, which is really weird to think about. Yeah, um, He never gets mentioned by anybody. He's never quoted by anybody. Um, so it's, it, it, it's the, 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 the world, for instance, of Alexandrian uh, philosophical development is often characters that we don't really talk about much, people like Numenius and things like that, who I think had a real impact Whereas yeah. Philo is is much better, much better known. I think he had actually much less impact. And of course, Plotinus is only going to have an impact beginning probably in the at the you know at the very earliest. It's probably the beginning of the fourth century. And I think people need to understand the milieu of Alexandria. I mean, you know, even even scholars are guilty of um, compartmentalizing and fragmenting things. I mean, you're dealing with the the epicenter of, of, of the religious and philosophical world of that time, at least in that area of the world. And um, there's no, there's this constant seeking for a cause, like this person influenced this person or this thing caused this thing. But it's almost like the Buddhist idea of interdependent origination. I mean, you're dealing with a, with a culture and from the culture, there's this constant exchange and communication and interchange and, and, um, sharing that's going on and and so the ideas that that the philo uh was articulating you know it's not that he was sitting there all alone all day just coming up with these things independently i mean he was within a culture i mean there was so there were so many temples of all kinds in alexandria i mean you had egyptian temples you had jewish temple you had you know secret secret hermetic 
almost quasi-Masonic association. You had the Neoplatonists, you had Syrians, you had, I mean, there's just so much going on there. So much interchange, so much communication, so much mingling. I mean, it's like, how do you, how do you even do the, it's like the chicken and the egg thing. How do you even say who caused what or who influenced who really? No, absolutely. It's an incredibly complex. I mean, Alexandria, you know, you can look at someone like Zosimos of Panopolis or someone like that and see uh, his relationship, for instance, with the local Jewish population that just shows, like like you said, an enormous amount of interpenetration and in- mutual influence that's going on in Alexandria. And again, another world that I think is also completely worthy of an HBO mo- series or whatever, something taking place in Alexandria. And I will say the movie Agora did a relatively good job of kind of showcasing a bit of that world um, and sort of the conflicts and 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 inner and sort of relationships that existed at that that time period, which is I think is a relatively okay movie. But yeah, I think that that isolate the idea of isolating out any clear linear influence from that world uh, just doesn't really represent how incredibly complex the world of 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 Alexandria was from the first, you know, the first few centuries of the common era all the way uh, to the Islamic period. And even, I think even in, during the early Islamic period. So that world was just enormously fascinating. And unfortunately we don't know that much about it. What, what, what I have given for, you know, something like an ethnographer to have lived at that time period. And we have these other interesting groups of Jews, for instance, that existed at that time, like the Therapeutae that if we, if it weren't for the references that Philo gives, and on the contemplative life, we wouldn't even know they existed. But clearly, they were a relatively large group of Jews practicing a very unusual type of Judaism uh, there in Alexandria. Apparently, one in which, for instance, women were equal partners in, um, in, in, that, in that group. They had their own scriptures, their own writings. We know that they had their own texts. Um, they're all gone. We, they're ne- they've never been found. So we know that they're all, there must have just been dozens of these groups existing in, in ancient Alexandria. And we will, will likely barring some, uh, barring some discovery, which is always possible. We may never know much about them. Yeah. Thank God for these garbage dumps in Egypt. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oxyrhynchus, man. Oxyrhynchus. Right. And uh, yeah, the, I tell, you know, that, that, you know, I, I, I listen to a lot of Sesame street these days because of my, my two year old and Oscar <laughs> the grouch. You know, I'm like, yeah, thank God, you know, archaeologists and Arca- Oscar the Grouch both have one thing in common. They love trash. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, Oxyrhynchus and other kinds of places. And I really, I, I think I, I really hold out hope that we'll discover, you know, I, uh, you know, Oxyrhynchus is another famous example. The Ibn, Ibn Ezra synagogue, the Cairo Geniza, just all the stuff that was found there. I, I think that, uh, you know, they just found fabric uh, in the south of Israel that was dated to 1000 BCE uh, in great shape. Um, so uh, is that the, so pur- I, the purple fabric? Yeah, the purple fabric they yeah. found the, the, with the made with the dyed with the muzzles, the techelet color, uh, allegedly. So I, I really hold out hope that we're going to pop open a grave or something. And lo and behold, there's another Nagamati. I just think it's just a matter of time until that happens. Yeah, it's great to fantasize about that happening. And, you know, it's it could very easily be a reality, like you said. Um, the thing about Oxyrhynchus and some of these other literal dump deposits of, of knowledge, it's hard to, to, I don't know how to even engage with that material. I mean, where do you even find it? And, and is how thoroughly has it even been looked at at this point? Because it's so fragmented and it just seems like such a huge undertaking. 
Oxyrhynchus, I think it's been gone through pretty well. I think the yeah, I think that it's been gone through pretty well. The Kairos, the Ibn Ezra synagogue, the Cairo Geniza has been mostly gone over, but there's still certainly uh, fragments of things that need need to be put back together. Even the Dead Sea Scrolls, they just, uh, I think, just what, last year, they just found uh, were able to piece together a part of um, of a scroll that was part of one of the cryptic scrolls, which are interesting to me. They're scrolls written in a code. There's actually they're yeah. encoded. And these encoded scrolls are um, these encoded scrolls are, are a bit weird because they t- they tend to include a lot of calendrical data, which that's another thing that's interesting about the Qumran communities. They they used a completely different calendar than the rest of the Jewish world. They used a calendar very similar to the one described in the Book of Enoch. And the just last year, I think the scholars were able to put together and decipher a part of a, a Dead Sea Scroll that that had basically been that that you know had basically not been understood previously and you know we just the scholars just to put together uh, the book of toth uh, the conversations in the house of life the first edition of that just came out within the past 10 years and that had been basically reconstructed from 30 or so different uh, manuscripts demotic manuscripts recovered uh, all over the world and in, in, in egyptian so uh, any i tell people you know if you think that the work of of mining history for all this stuff is done you have no idea. There's, and this is not to even mention all the stuff that needs to be done. For instance, in languages like Middle Persian, there's so much oh, right. work that needs to be done in 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 that area. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah, I mean, how much is out there that hasn't been translated into you know languages for the West, rest, Western world to examine? Sure, um, so much. I mean, it's just like, you know the Zoroastrian scriptures. Uh, there's still not a great edition of the totality of of, of Zoroastrian scriptures into English. Um, so yeah, there's we are still. I tell people if we, if you want to get involved in this kind of material, there's a lot to do. There's <laughs> right. a lot to do. You just need to learn some languages and get to work and get hired somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's always the hard part. Yeah. So. Bring it back down to earth a little bit more. What did the the magical practice, or what did the the practices of some of these uh, miracle workers look like, from your estimation? Yeah, I think at least. So we have um, two tracks, at least, that we can think of in terms of 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 what existed. We have the the Greco Egyptian magic that we have a huge amount of data from the Greek magical papyri of which uh, a great deal of that is Jewish magic. There's clearly examples of, of magical practices that Jews were engaging in. Um, the wide range, everything from curse tablets written on lead all the way to uh, various kinds of invocations. And what we see uh, is exactly what you guys said earlier. We see a high degree of, of, uh, of um, overlap, cultural overlap, where people are magic is being used from pagans from hellenes from romans from jews from christians from gnostics and they're more than happy to mix this stuff together in all kinds of ways so uh, a high degree of, of of cooperation uh cultural cooperation when it comes to that the other side of it uh, is you know in the rabbinical world it's very clear that um some kind of magical practices were happening i can think of two examples jump to my mind immediately the one is of course uh uh the circle maker People may not know this story, right? Choni was famous, was made famous for, um, it was in the middle of the winter in Israel and it hadn't rained really. And of course that's bad because basically Israel only gets rain in the winter. And Choni drew a circle and said, look, I'm not going to come out of the circle, God, until you, until you make it rain. And so there was a, God allowed a little bit of rain to fall and Choni said, that's not enough. And then it 
you know, God sent a torrent. And then Choni said, that's too much. And God turned it back down to regular rain. And then Choni uh, relented. And he almost got excommunicated for this, by the way. Uh, the, the rabbis are not kind to uh, to Choni about this issue. It's it's tempting. It's sort of, you know, forcing God to do stuff, which was thought of as blasphemous. So we have people like Choni. We have people like Chanina um, uh, Bendosa, who's also a miracle worker, an exorcist, very similar in many ways to Jesus. And of course, also what we have in the Talmud is a, a huge range of magical practices that occur in the Talmud. Uh, I think that the most uh, the most weird, to me at least, is there's a, there's a section in the Talmud where these two rabbis are studying uh, what the text calls Chilchot Yetzirah. And one later version calls it Sefer Yetzirah. And of course, this is the maybe a reference to the very famous text that we have now, the very short but very famous text. And there, there's a conversation about what is constitutive of sorcery, because, of course, sorcery is a death penalty case in Jewish law. And what they, the one example, the one of the examples they give that isn't sorcery, that is not sorcery, weirdly enough, is these two rabbis studying Chilchot Yetzirah and making a calf and eating it on Shabbat. So they, they make a calf. Hmm. Uh, and in another story, they actually make a man. Uh, one, and they make a man. And uh, one rabbi sends this man to another uh, rabbi, and the rabbi instantly recognizes, because the man, the artificial humanoid can't talk, that it is a, a thing of the sorcerers and actually makes it collapse back into to dust. So, and again, if that's not sorcery, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, but it was allowed. This, this was sanctioned. This was completely considered normal. I don't know if that's the right word, but at least not sorcery, according to the, to the rabbis of the Talmud. So clearly in, in, the, in the, the Talmud, there's a great deal of astrology going on, a great deal of magic going on, what we would now call magic. So yeah, in the field of, of Jewish magic, uh, all the way from Alexandria, we have the kind of Greco-Egyptian magic, and then obviously all the way in what is now Iraq, uh, would have been at that point the Persian Empire. In the time of the Talmud, there's magical practices going on. There as well, and that's not to mention, of course, the the Merkava traditions. That is to say, these folks who are engaging in mystical descents into the uh, palaces of God and encountering all kinds of angels and things like that on the way, which is its own curious tradition, uh, to say the very least. Would you Would you let me start that over? Again. Would you mind? Ex- <laughs> would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Because um, I, I love the the idea of the descent, which is also an ascent. I know you've talked about this in other places, but it is, I think, worth talking about. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's it's a a very, that, that in itself is a very Neoplatonic concept to the, the descent and ascent mm-hmm. and synonymity. Right. Yeah. Pro, the big ideas of procession and, um, and recession. And, and Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah, a huge idea in Neoplatonism for sure. Yeah, the Merkava traditions are preserved in several different manuscripts. Uh, a handful, not not a small amount of manuscripts. In fact, there there actually is a chunk of them. And the Merkava tradition is a was a form of Jewish mysticism that existed prior to the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah, as we know it, really doesn't come into existence until the until the really the twelfth, thirteenth century of the Common Era. But the Merkava tradition were apparently traditions in which rabbis would descend into the throne of God. They would descend into these heavenly palaces, the Hechalot. And these palaces are guarded by various kinds of uh, pretty terrifying angels. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with those angels. Um, And you pass through them with a series, you pass through these various uh, Hechalot, these various palaces in the side of the divine uh, realm. 
by offering uh, passcodes and magical symbols to sort of bypass these angelic guardians. And the ultimate goal, depending on what the text is, is uh, either to behold the body of God and to measure it, which is uh, preserved in a group of texts called the Shi'or Koma, the measurement of the heights, a measurement of the vastness. Um, and in other versions, you actually sit on the throne of God, which is very interesting. Um, and sometimes you're given a vision of the throne of God. Um, this has There's very curious stories in the Talmud where rabbis uh, actually go into the throne room of God and they see an angel, the angel Metatron, sitting on the throne of God. And this causes a pretty famous uh, rabbi named Elisha bin Abuya to become a heretic. He declares there are two powers in heaven and, 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 and becomes a heretic. In fact, he's the biggest heretic in rabbinical Judaism. Uh, Jesus is barely ever mentioned in the Talmud as a, as a heretic. But Elisha bin Abuya is so thought to be so heretical that they don't even call him by his name. They refer to him simply as Acher, the other one. So this descent literature is really fascinating because one descends into the throne, uh, the throne, the, the throne room, the palaces of God. And uh, it's very clear that this was phenomenological. That is to say, the that we have we have records of people having gone through this experience and we don't know much about the techniques that they used to, to do this. Uh, we think it may have involved uh, some breathing techniques, maybe putting uh, hyperventilating and putting your head between your, your knees. There's some references to stuff like that. So we don't know exactly how this was done, but uh, if you ever get the chance to read um, the Hechalot Rabati uh, or the Hechalot Zutarti, these, these texts that have survived, you get incredible visions of these various palaces and also of the dangers associated with traveling in these palaces. There's a great sequence, and I think in Hechelot Rabati, where one rabbi chides another one for giving him a, a wrong password. And he says, look, you have no idea. Like, if you, if you would have said that wrong password to this certain angel, he would have killed us all. Um, and you can't muck around with this stuff. And to me, when I read that, I'm reading a real conversation. I don't think it's just literature. Yeah, I don't think it's just literature. I think that you're, we're reading the record of of a phenomenological, of a phenomenological experience, which is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and it seems to parallel the theurgic type ascent, and you know stuff you see in the liturgy of of Mithras from the uh, PGM. Um, and this idea of angels is 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 really interesting. This this really scary angel um, symbolism. I want to kind of ask you a question related to this. It might be something out of left field, but in Simonianism or Simonism, Simon, the theology that we have left over from the Christian uh, heresy hunters, um, they they talk a lot about Simon and Dositheus. Allegedly, Simon was a, a Samaritan. He lived in Samaria at least, but they talk about this standing one where he and Dositheus both claim to be uh, he who stood, he who stands, and he who will stand. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this idea of the standing one. I, I believe... Um, in the book of Enoch, they speak about st- something about uh, everyone must be standing. I, I don't know. Can you shed some light on this? Yeah, there's a there's a curious, a couple of curious. Uh, play- yeah, one we don't know what that's referring to. It's very obscure. Yeah, but there's a there's a weird th- that story I just told. There's a story in the Talmud where these four rabbis go into the, the into the pardes. They descend into the, the to the garden of God, and one of the things that they notice, of course, is this Metatron, this angel Metatron, who's very unusual, at least in the book of Enoch, it's actually a, uh, it's Enoch made basically into an angel. He's sort of transformed into this angelic creature. 
And in that text, the angel Metatron is referred to as uh, Yahweh Katan, little Yahweh. Yeah, little Yahweh, uh, like a second god. And what's interesting is that in that story, um, Metatron is sitting on the throne of God when Elisha ben Abuya enters into the throne room. And there's a verse that says that there's no sitting in, in heaven. And Elisha is confused by this. And apparently the other angels thrash Metatron. They, they, they attack him with fiery lashes. In Aramaic, it's pulsa denora, which is an interesting prayer even to this day. There's a prayer, a sort of a death prayer kind of that you can, that people sometimes pray to have people killed called pulsa denora, named after those fiery lashes. And so there's this idea apparently that in the heavenly throne room, one doesn't sit, that God is perpetually standing or this angel Metatron is supposed to be standing and somehow it wasn't. So it seems like that there's some kind of, there's some mythology of which we have fragments that seem to have been preserved and chunks of things in which there was a clear visionary experience of what the throne room of God looked like and what went on there. And we just have fragments of what that was. And even fragments in the New Testament, for instance, in um, I think it's in First Corinthians, maybe First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, one of the Corinthians, where uh, Paul mentions being caught up into the uh, third heaven, that he, he also had one of these experiences, it seems like. So this was this was something that was going on in the, in, the, in the Jewish matrix of the first few centuries of the common era. It was relatively well known. People talked about it. It seems like people like Paul experienced it. The rabbis experienced it. We have these Simonian texts as well. Um, the Gnostics also seem to have these sort of visionary experiences. So there's, there's so a, like, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to no. I, I would just, I would say that we, and we, we were talking about this before we were recording, that there's this weird intellectualizing uh, that goes on. And I think you're exactly right, that we think about these people as sort of uh, schools of thought or something. And that's only a very dim sliver of what's going on, but it's very clearly also in very intense mystical practices that are producing very powerful phenomenological experiences. And those are clearly going on, not just among a tiny group of people, but among rabbinical elites and people who are basically framing the future of rabbinical Judaism, but I think a much broader sections of the population. My opinion is that this is actually a much bigger part of what was going on in the religious life of people in that time. And we, we just don't have much, much, we, we just don't, we just don't have a lot of good, the data about it is just, is weirdly skewed, but I think it was a much bigger part of people's religiosity than we, than scholars want to admit. Well, it's a shamanic, I mean, for lack of a better better word, word, I don't need to overstate that we're all aware of the, you know, some of the baggage that comes along with using that word. But for lack of a better word, it's a shamanic ascent. It's a shamanic approach, which is uh, sort of integral to many religions on on some some levels. And I mean, if you if you look at Paul, he's doing he's discussing a shamanic ascent, or you could even say a Merkava ascent. I mean, he's going through the heavens, he's going through the palaces. And, and I don't, I think that it's completely reasonable to, to say, okay, well, this is part of Judaism at the time, but also because it was probably part of a greater religious culture at the time that was, would extend to other religions. I mean, we certainly see it in the ancient Egyptian texts, like the, the Amduat and the coffin texts, you know, Jeremy Nadler's done some really cool work on that subject. 
and and you know here we have a you know a person uh, immaterially tra- traversing the spiritual realms going to different pylons which we could say are heavens just you know framed according to a different cultural context and i think that what you just said is so important because yeah like we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast i was saying to justin for for listeners that i have a real problem with the with the term um not schools of thought what did i say uh, belief oh, system be- i think belief okay. system yeah i have a huge issue with the term quote unquote belief system it's a reductionistic term that treats religious and uh, mystical approaches and, and traditions uh, as as this as this systematizing of, of thoughts as a systematizing of ideas instead of uh, treating it as it properly should which is um, which is as as people's attempts to formulate um, an understanding of direct experiences of the spiritual realms that they've had and spiritual beings. Sure, there's later accretions and tradition of intellectual development of these ideas, but in most of these most of these scenarios, there's some kind of visionary ascent. No, I think I think that's completely I think that's true and and, and a complete completely reasonable. Um, and in fact, it's even scholars admit as much. Jim Davila, who is the world's leading expert on the Hechalot literature, one of the world's leading experts and the publisher of most of this literature, he just calls it Jewish shamanism. I mean, that's just the word he uses. Um, and again, like you said, that with all the caveats that come along with that phrase. So, yeah, I, I don't. I think that there's a weird bias that exists in academia against mysticism. Against I think there's a bias against psychedelics. I think there's a bias against a lot of this stuff that I find just isn't rigorous, isn't backed up in history. And I think it has to do with the fact that so much of academia has is, is based up on these, these hardcore enlightenment values around rationalism. And there's this sort of weird um, phobia that if, if, if something isn't rational, then it's bad or evil, or I don't know what people think. But it seems very clear to me that mystic, mystical, profound mystical experiences were a part of what was going on at this time period among all the religions. You think about all the incubation stuff that's going on, people sleeping in temples and things like that. So, yeah, it seems very clear to me that there was a phenomenological part of religiosity in the ancient and this part of the ancient world, including in Judaism, uh, that eventually that eventually got suppressed. And I would say not, uh, maybe walk that back, not got suppressed because I think it survived in Judaism and I think it still survives honestly in Judaism, but I think it it got morphed. And I think part of it has to do with how Christianity came to see itself and how Christianity set the really uh, Christianity set the values in a certain kind of way. And these kinds of mystical ascents um, are just incompatible with a religion that basically says that you, your salvation is mediated by this this state apparatus. Um, and so if insofar as religiosity is understood as being mediated by a very powerful spiritual bureaucracy, uh, the idea of individual ascent into the divine realm just doesn't, it's incompatible basically. Well, and, and I think that there's a sort of a fetishism uh, in rationalism. I mean, I would, I would even go so far as to say that uh, the obsession with rationalism is is a, a natural development of materialistic of materialism i mean ra- the 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 fetishization of rationalism is implicit in the materialistic attitude that was born from 
from this sort of enlightenment type of thought. And I know the enlightenment brought us some good things too, but ultimately here, I mean, it, it's, it's made academia uh, into idol worshipers in a way, uh, not all of academia, but many of them, because they worship this, this idol of fossilized objectivity, but, but it, it's, the, the objectivity itself has become objectified to the point of becoming a brazen idol in a way. And it, it's just so alienated from the lived direct experience. And I think that you even see this among esotericists. They get so obsessed with the texts, so obsessed with the ideas that they forget, oh, wait a minute. This is people saying, well, like Jesus said, well, yeah, we did this, but you could do it too, and you should try and do it. And this is kind of a map for you in case you try and do it, and you end up where I went or somewhere similar. Yeah, and I will say that I can't speak for for esotericists, but I can I can speak for someone who actually identifies as a materialist. I I, I subscribe to a pretty materialistic worldview. Um, that I think it's just bad materialism. Like I think that I'm not a physicalist, but I would say that. I think even if you're going to do history, philosophy, if you're going to study any of this stuff, that leaving this stuff, leaving this aspect of history out is just doing bad history. So, and I think that, I think that there's a certain kind of base materialism that, that passes for a larger theory of what materialism is. And again, as a person who identifies as a kind of materialist, I just think it's bad materialism, frankly. Interesting. Um, Awesome points all around. I do think we need to start wrapping up. I think we could probably keep going and going and going. As you can tell, we're passionate and obsessed with these topics, and it's awesome to to talk with someone who's just as passionate, if not more. So, Dr. Sledge, we very much appreciate you coming on. Where could people um, continue kind of learning from you? Where Where can they find you? Yeah, I think the, the easiest places to find me uh, are on my website, just justinsledge.com. I, I, folks can reach me there if they like. And of course, the other place is my show on YouTube, Esoterica. And there at Esoterica, we we go through the history of, of esoteric ideas, occultism, Kabbalah, magic, cover a wide range of, of topics and in, in the history and practice of, of esotericism and occultism. And I typically put out content just about every Friday. So, uh, and I'm always interested in, in, in what folks are uh, wanting to see shows about. So we have a, a wide range of, of topics there from everything from the Abramelin to the Greek magical papyri to the origins of the Kabbalah. So it's a pretty, pretty wide ranging, pretty wide ranging stuff. And so people can find me there on YouTube uh, at Esoterica. Yeah, guys, check it out. I mean, if you're not aware of Justin's channel, you got to jump on there as soon as you get off this podcast. It's that worth it. We love him. We love his stuff. It's top quality, top notch. Um, he goes deep and he's also approachable and funny at times. I don't want to, you know, luckily we don't can't see each other. So I think he's if he's blushing, I can't see it. But it's true. He's one of the very best out there right now. We fully support him and we think you should too. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. And again, I, I really try to make the channel approachable for, uh, for, uh, you know, even from hardcore skeptics all the way to people who, for whom this is a, a deep part of an integral part of their spiritual life. I, uh, I really hope I can, I really aim for the channel to speak to, to that entire, to that entire spectrum. So I really appreciate the plug and, and the support. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. I mean, for nerds like us, I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome to have this kind of resource. So I would say start at video number one and just work your way through. He's made a ton of videos and it sounds like they're going to keep coming, which, uh, which is awesome. 
So and the nice thing about Justin is he makes it accessible. Some of these things are not accessible. For instance, uh, I just watched the video you put out on the conversations in the house of life, which is about, you know, the demonic book of, of Thoth, um, which I have studied and which I own um, and absolutely adore. I think you took a very challenging text and um, made it somewhat accessible and understandable. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that I'd, I would have wanted that task because I'm sure, I'm sure with that one, you struggled a little bit at first. I know I would have. Oh, it's a really, it's a really hard text. And I think a lot of these texts are really challenging, you know, and that's the job of, of, of a teacher. You know, I teach philosophy and my, my day job. And I think a lot of people think of philosophy, people like Immanuel Kant or Hegel as being completely unapproachable. And I think that the job of any teacher who's worth their salt is taking these ideas and, and trying taking these ideas, taking these texts and producing them in a way that's accessible without um, watering them down, so to speak. And I tell people very clearly, you know, like for instance, with the, with the text, uh, the conversations, the house of life, I'm like, yeah, you need to read it for yourself. This text is very obscure, but I don't want obscurity or technicality to be a barrier uh, for folks to have access to this material. And I think at the end of basically every episode I do, I try to point people in the direction of solid, reliable, scholarly texts to, uh, you know, to continue their journey. Because I don't think of esoterica as being the end of anything. It's it's the beginning of a conversation. It's it, it's the ability to to get on YouTube, take a look at this, learn a bit about it from a scholarly perspective, and then for folks to continue doing their own spiritual practice or their own learning. So that's basically the idea. That my my job is to make this stuff. Uh, accessible and scholarly without compromising the integrity of the material. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for, for coming on and talking to us about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. And I'm always, always happy to, to chat with, you know, passionate folks like y'all are super smart, super passionate. Yeah. I just, it's a real pleasure and it's a real honor to be on, to be on podcast, to be on you guys podcast. I really appreciate it. Okay, that was Justin Sledge from Esoterica. We think Esoterica is one of the highest quality shows on um, esoteric subjects. We have immense respect for him, and um, we're really excited to have him on the show. It was great to talk to him. He's a flexible, intelligent, lucid explicator of these things with a near encyclopedic knowledge of the subjects that he studies it's incredible he's almost like a polymath but at the same time he's friendly funny just uh you know witty just a nice person to talk to really just great guy and um i like being challenged by people who can uh present me with information i haven't encountered or perspectives i haven't approached and i i I was really happy to have him on the show and present those things. You know, I, I loved learning some of the material he shared with us and, and it really places things into an even better context. Having an idea of what the world was like in that period is important because frankly, we are still living out some of the, you could say plot lines that started back then, especially when it comes to religion and magic and spirituality and, and all of that, I mean, we are we're still in that world to a certain degree. And so understanding how formative that time period was, I think is essential to properly contextualizing uh, practice based in um, engagement 
with the world that those paradigms describe. And, and because it was so complicated, it's important for us to be able to look at the different sort of cultural enclaves of the Near East and the Middle East and North Africa and the Mediterranean um, in that period, because there was so much happening at that in that little part of the world. I mean, really, if you think about geographic proximity, it's it's not a very large area of the world, but there was a lot happening, and um, things happened in that part of the world that have influenced Western culture for the past two thousand years. I think what Justin shared with us is some invaluable information and contextual uh, knowledge that can really help us to penetrate more deeply into what that was like. Yeah, man, absolutely. And we barely touched the tip of the iceberg or, you know, we, we barely got into it. Um, there are just so many directions you could go with this. And as much as we modern people think we know about history, um, we barely know anything in reality of what was going on back then. So the more we can dig into to uh, try to illuminate a more uh, realistic and comprehensive context, the, the better. And I think we just have to, you can never stop. You can never stop learning and th- you can't just, you know, you can never think that you, you know what was going on back then. Cause you know, every year that goes by, I, I learn new things and it's, and it changes my opinion slightly on, on how I look at things back then. So Justin's a great guy for helping contextualize that sort of stuff. He's extremely knowledgeable and he's a professional educator. He loves what he does and it shows he's passionate. I'm sure most of our listeners have have uh, viewed his, his YouTube channel. If not, I would definitely uh, go there as soon as possible. And It's highly recommended. It really yeah. is. It soars above and beyond most other <clears throat> shows on the topic. And, and you guys know we do try our very best in the most sincere way to uh, provide a high bar ourselves. And um, there aren't many other shows or podcasts that we're willing to promote um, because of that. And his is absolutely one of the ones that we are. I also think it's valuable because even though he is, uh, he's, he's been rigorously trained. He is, as, as Dominic said, a professional educator. He's also able to understand the shortcomings of academia and isn't afraid to say so. That's really useful. I think as well, Um, uh, you know, in a closing sort of remark, I do want to mention how on one hand, it's important for us to, in our encounter with academia, utilize it as a tool for acquiring information and knowledge, however, and developing our knowledge, I should say. However, we should also view academic sources with a critical eye because there are um, materialists, there's a generally materialistic orientation that it has been prevalent in academia for a very long time. Now that's changing to a certain degree in some areas, but then in other areas, there seems to be um, a further sort of concentration of that attitude. So I think that because of that implicit bias that comes along with that attitude, things are missed, uh, things are passed over, things are ignored. Uh, What I'm getting at in the end is that these things actually arise out of lived experience, out of direct experience. If you look at the root of most religions, there is a prophet or a magician or a medicine man or woman uh, at the root of it. Um, 
In fact, some of them, there's groups of people who engaged in ecstatic uh, practices where they were attempting to engage with the invisible. And they did engage with the invisible. And they made contact with the invisible. And usually religions arise, at least in their formative phases, arise from that kind of direct experience and are an attempt to render that experience in language that can be accessible to others who may be seeking the same. Um, again, belief system, I think, is a deeply problematic uh, term. And it's symbolic of the materialistic bias that um, continues to cripple um, many corners of academia. So let's move into the book review segment. I'm going to do that today. Uh, the book I picked is one that everyone should read, but it's it's a uh, version that you may not have seen before. It's the uh, Secret Book of John, but this is going to be the Skylight Illuminations Annotated and Explained version by Stephen Davies. It uh, pretty directly relates to the conversation we had today. And um, just to note, Justin has a, a great video on the Secret Book of John on his YouTube channel where he, I believe he recommends this version as well. Um, it may not be your your go-to version, but I think it would be of value to have um, to reference. So the reason I like this book and the reason I picked it is that it's a book that you can easily meditate on. So it's annotated and explained, but the annotations are not in the sense that they point to other books or other scholarly works. Um, it's it's more of an explanation. So there'll be uh, a page of text from the Secret Book of John, maybe a few sentences in some cases or a paragraph. And then on the, the opposite page, it'll be a breakdown point by point of everything that was discussed in that section. This is a difficult work. Uh, the Secret Book of John is is complicated. Um, it's messy. It's It's muddy at times. So something like this, I think, is very valuable to help you kind of focus in. And like I said, you can meditate on just a few sentences and really kind of work out uh, what it means in a better way. So again, The Secret Book of John, annotated and explained by Stephen Davies. All right. Thank you for that. Um, definitely a worthy addition to the library, especially um, to the Gnostic esoteric library. Um, yeah. So Thank you very much also to those people that are generously offering support to the show. We are deeply grateful to the people who do offer us support because there is overhead associated with what we do, as well as a significant investment of time and energy in a variety of ways. And, you know, were we to have no support, we would continue to do it. But this support enables us to just offer a higher quality uh, of what we're doing. And um, we are deeply grateful for it. And we're also kind of humbled that there are people that find value in what we're doing, because we are really doing this out of passion and enthusiasm uh, for these subjects. Um, you know, this is coming from the heart. And so from the heart, we want to say thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I totally echo what, what you said there. Yeah, it's it's really cool to know that there are people out there that find value in this. Um, like, like you just said, we would do it regardless, but it definitely helps. So thank you. Having said that, you can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, um, Stitcher, Google play, iTunes, the Astro plane, 
So thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Remote viewing. Remote, remote viewing. viewing. Yeah, some remote viewing. All right. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>